Man, isn't the Lord good? Let's just celebrate him again for the way he transforms lives. It's amazing. I'm going to get you to grab your Bibles, if you would. Let's jump into the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64. We have been in a series called Downpour, working verse by verse through Isaiah 64. And uh, we're coming to the end of this today. And what I want to talk about today is really why we have taken this journey, not just in this series, but why we have taken this journey in this past 14 to 15 months as a faith family as we have been praying like never before, asking God to bring revival. This has been the heartbeat of me as, as lead pastor and our elders, that we would be a church that would run after Jesus and uh, call on his name and ask him to move in a way that he's never moved before. And, and this is a posture that God is, con- is calling us to continue to live in until he shows up in uh, this way. And he- here's what I wanna do today. It's a very simple kind of task today is I really wanna give you the why behind uh, the what. You know, what I've been preaching this past 12 to 15 months has been inviting and calling our church into seeking the Lord for revival. And today what I wanna do is really talk about why and and what it looks like for you to embrace that posture in prayer. I recognize there are times as a pastor where there is a gap between what we preach and the congregation's understanding of why we preach it. Does that make sense? Like there there are times where pastors will have an angst or a burden and we're preaching these things and then there's there's a receptiveness of it, but there's still a question mark of why, why are we running after this? Why is it that we're, you know, preaching what we're preaching and why is it that we're taking the journey that we're taking? And I just want to acknowledge that I understand that gap probably exists, especially since I've been kind of preaching this subject and keep coming back to this subject and keep inviting us um, to prayer. There's probably some question marks of why it is that we're, doing this. And today, really, I want to answer that question. I want to show you the heart of revival praying and what has created this in my heart and what I'm praying God is creating in your heart that we together would run after this thing, not just because your pastor says, hey, let's do this, but rather because you feel it in your heart as well. And, and really, Isaiah helps us understand this. Isaiah is a prophet that is praying for revival. He is desperate for revival. He is pleading with God to move in a fresh way. God's people have wandered from the Lord. The spirit of God has been removed. Isaiah is now praying that God would return. And as we get to the very end of this chapter, there's just three verses there that help us get an insight into why it is that Isaiah is praying and pleading with God for revival. So Isaiah 64 is where we're gonna be. If you're there, I want you to say this phrase, the Bible is true. We believe that here at New Beginnings and we'll continue uh, to preach and teach God's word because the Bible is true, amen? Isaiah 64, verse 10. He says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? These verses seem real simple, but they really help us understand the heartbeat behind why Isaiah is praying like he's praying. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you one statement, really that, that summarizes the heart of the message today and really what we're gonna unpack from this, uh, these three verses here in Isaiah 64. This phrase really helps us understand 
uh, where uh, revival praying comes from. What does it mean for us to plead with God for revival? What starts it, like, and in, 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 in what does it lead us to? This is the heartbeat of today's message. Let me give you the phrase I want you to write down, and it's simply this. Pleading for, uh, ple- uh, pleading for revival starts <clears throat> with a recognition of the absence of the presence and the power of God. This recognition leads us to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. This is what we're going to learn from Isaiah, and this really helps articulate my heartbeat in the season of life we're in. Pleading for revival starts with a recognition. It's coming to an understanding of the absence of God's presence and power. Now, we don't just want to stay with, okay, God's presence and power isn't here. This recognition leads to a desperation for God's presence and power. It leads us to a place where we go, God, nothing can satisfy us except for revival, except for your presence and power moving in our midst once again. And I believe there's something powerful when we begin to pray like this. Let me read you a little story. Uh, there was a, um, I don't know who it was, a church member, I guess, dropped this off uh, to my office a few weeks ago. I didn't even look at it. It was just a little note and, and on it. And, and I read the note, just said, you'll, you'll enjoy this. But I got busy and I sat at the side of my desk and it just sat there for a couple of weeks. And then this week, I actually looked at it and I was like, man, this is powerful. So if you were the anonymous person who dropped this on my desk, thank you so much. Typically when they're anonymous, we don't say thank you for those, all right? Those are not good ones. But here, here's what it did. This, this really captures, um, here's what, this what captures a story of, of revival that really helps articulate what we're gonna run after um, today. Um, it says this, while vacationing in England, D.L. Moody visited a London church that was spiritually dead. The pastor recognized him and asked him to preach at the morning service. Reluctantly, Moody agreed. Afterward, he told a friend uh, the congregation was so unresponsive that all he could do uh, was, was try to finish the sermon. He said everything he could do just to get through the sermon. It was that cold and dead. Later, he remembered that he had committed to preaching there again that night. Wishing he had never interrupted his vacation plans, he spent the afternoon dreading what was ahead. But behind the scenes, something was happening that Moody knew nothing about. After the morning service, an elderly lady met her invalid sister for lunch and told her about Moody's coming visit. Her her sister's eyes lit up and she exclaimed, I've been praying for God to send Moody to England. Put away your lunch, sis. We'll spend the afternoon fasting and praying for tonight's service. When Moody took the pulpit that night, an electric sense of God's presence filled the sanctuary. He preached like a man on fire. And when he issued the invitation for the people to follow Christ, 500 people responded. Uh, Thinking that they had misunderstood, Moody had them sit down and he re-explained the gospel call. This is a true story. But when he had issued the second invitation, the same 500 stood to receive Christ. That Sunday initiated one of the greatest revivals to ever sweep through England. What helped make this happen? Two elderly ladies who understood their church desperately needed the fire of God's spirit and they believed God's promise when a believing person prays, great things happen. How cool is that story? And really, this, this articulates the heart of the message, is that these two elderly ladies came to a recognition 
of the deadness or the lack of spiritual vitality of their church. This, this recognition led them to a desperation when they began to call on the name of the Lord. And here is the result. This recognition led to a desperation that led to a visitation of God that led to a transformation of a country. And that's the heartbeat. And that's what we're gonna learn this morning as we walk through this. So let's look at the first part of this phrase, a recognition of the absence of God's presence and power. Where do we see this in Isaiah 64? Look what he says in verse 10. He says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and our pleasant places have become ruined. What you have right here is Isaiah's recognition of the absence of the presence and the power of God in the lives of the people of God. Here, here's why. If you understand anything about the Old Testament and the history of the Old Testament, here's what you'll come to discover, is that the, this idea of Jerusalem or Zion or the temple, the significance of this holy place, what the significance was is that this was the apex of the covenant. You see, God initiated a covenant relationship with the, the people of Israel, and here was the covenant. I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people. You're gonna walk in my ways, and my presence and power will dwell among you. And here was the purpose. You're gonna be my people, I'm gonna be your God, my presence is gonna dwell with you as you walk in obedience to me, and you then will be a light to the other nations that the true and living God is the God of the world. And so here is the point. The point is, is that it just wasn't that they belonged to him. It's just that they belonged to him and his presence dwelled among them. And this is what made the people of God so distinct from all the other peoples of the world. It was the presence of the creator of the universe that dwelled among them. And so when you understand the covenant, you understand Jerusalem, this is where the temple was. This is the holy city of God. This is where the temple was constructed and, and there in the temple, the very presence of God would descend and fill the temple and the people of God could go into the temple to worship him, to encounter him, to experience a relationship with him. They were the only people on the planet that had access to the presence of the creator. And as they walked in obedience, his presence would remain on them. I want you to think of it like this. If you, if you go back and read in Genesis, Genesis gives us the creation account. And, and there at the very beginning, you see this Garden of Eden created. And the Garden of Eden, what made the Garden of Eden so special is not just the food that it supplied, but rather it was the place where the presence of God met with Adam and Eve. This is where Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. This was literally God's presence on planet earth among his creation. But sin interrupted and broke that relationship and God's presence was withdrawn. But as God established this covenant community, God is showing us that, man, I wanna dwell with my people. And so through Israel, God made in Jerusalem with the temple a, what I would call a substitute Eden. It's a place where, where God's people could encounter God's presence once again. Now with that backdrop in mind, I want you to think about what's happening here. Isaiah has been preaching for years. Man, God's presence and power is being removed. Our sin has, has caused God's anger to burn against us. He's gonna bring judgment. The people have not listened. The judgment has come. And now Isaiah is looking at the ruins of the holy city. He's looking at the ruins of the temple, the apex of the covenant community, and there it is. It's all destroyed. 
And what Isaiah is seeing, listen to this, is he's physically seeing the ruins of the spiritual ruins that they have been living in for years. See, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality that occurred years before in the life of God's people. And that is their disobedience and sin had caused God to remove his presence and power. And here Isaiah is, now that they have had the full weight of the consequences of their sin, he is seeing God's presence is no longer here. God's power is gone. And see, here's the, the heartbreak of it is that God's people find their distinction in God's presence and power. And without God's presence and power, God's people lose their distinction. They existed to be the light of the world. And now that light has been taken away. I want you to see Isaiah communicates this very clear back in Isaiah 63, verse 18. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, your holy people held possession for a little while. In other words, your presence and power, man, we, we lived in it and we enjoyed it and we savored it and we experienced your, your, your presence and power. We held it as our possession for a little while. But look what he goes on to say. But our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. He, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of Zion, the temple being destroyed. And this is the evidence that the power and the presence of God is gone. What's the evidence? The enemy has destroyed it. This place has been destroyed. Look what he says in 19. This is the byproduct of this. He says, we have become like those whom you've never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. Again, remember, what was the apex of the covenant? It was the presence and the power of God among his people. This is what gave them their covenant identity. They are the people of God. Why? Because God's presence is with them. And now that his presence is gone, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's looking at the ruins of the temple and the rubble and the piles of rock and the, the, the city that's been burned down. And he's saying, it's as if you've never ruled over us. It's as if we've never been called by your name. In other words, we have no covenant identity because your presence is gone. This is heavy. This is a full-blown recognition of the absence of God's presence and spirit. And I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about what Isaiah's feeling. This is his home. I want you to feel the weight of what Isaiah's walking in right now. He's seeing the physical destruction as a consequence of sin. And he's seeing the remnant and the remains of the place where God's presence once was. And, and listen, I, I don't wanna over-dramatize this, but I have to think that there was weeping and wailing and there was this gut-wrenching moment as he sees what sin has done. I you think about it. This is as close as I can come up with an illustration. How many of you remember, from some of you college students, you, don't, you weren't even born then, but how many remember where you were when 9-11 took place? Everybody remember? Raise your hand if you remember that, all right? I remember where I was. I remember almost everything about the day. I remember, you know, what I saw on TV. I'll never forget... I, some of y'all felt this as well. As you watched the video and you see the destruction of this great city and these areas that were just buildings collapsing and, and businesses destroyed and people running for their lives. I want you to think, I remember watching this. It was actually on a hospital visit. A lady was having surgery and I was sitting there with her at, at the surgery and I'm, I'm watching this happen. I'll never forget just this, this, this 
angst in my heart, this heaviness, this brokenness. And I drove home and I ended up getting, uh, you know, my wife was in school at the time and we went home that evening. And I remember watching the television almost all night long and image after image after image, just feeling the weight of what just had happened. This city that's so beautiful that has so much of it destroyed and just feeling like something is broken and something is wrong. How many of you remember that? Do you feel that? You know what's crazy about this? is that I felt that, and I had never, up to that moment in my life, I'd never been to New York. I'd never been to Manhattan. I'd never seen Broadway. I've never been to Central Park. There's so much of it I I just saw on television, yet there was still this brokenness of what has happened. Now, think about this for a minute. Now imagine what Isaiah's feeling. This was the city of God. This was the apex of the covenant community. This is where the presence of God, this is where Isaiah's life was radically transformed. In fact, let me show you what Isaiah experienced at the temple and why it is, I believe he's so broken at this recognition. If you go back in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah six really records, some theologians say it's Isaiah's conversion. Some say it's his calling. Some some people say it's his conversion and calling. I don't know. All I know is in Isaiah six, Isaiah encountered the Lord and was never the same again. Isaiah chapter six, verse one, here's what is recorded. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Like this is a real event that happened. Isaiah in in chapter six goes to the temple. He's there in Zion. He goes to the temple of the Lord and there just another day in the church, God showed up in power. And Isaiah shows us what transformed his life was that there in Jerusalem, in the temple, the the, the heavens were pulled back and he was moved in that moment from the earthly temple and he got a glimpse of the glorious heavenly temple and there he saw the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, before he put on skin and he was sitting on a throne and he was high and lifted up. And it says the train of his robe, that, that indicated the majesty of Jesus. It filled the temple. And it says the temple was filled with smoke, meaning that the presence of God was descending. And then he saw the great, glorious, angelic beings hovering around King Jesus. And they were yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And another angel would then echo that. And another angel would echo that. And in that moment, Isaiah gets a glimpse into the very presence of God. And the ground begins to shake. And Isaiah's life was never the same again. This was that moment in his life where he saw the beauty and the glory of King Jesus and he could never get over it. Fast forward. Maybe he's standing on those very streets and he's looking at what used to be the temple and he's remembering that moment when he met Jesus. And he's thinking to himself, what have we done? The presence and the power of God is gone. And there's just the memory of what once was when the presence of Jesus could be enjoyed. You feel what Isaiah's feeling? There's a recognition 
of things are not what they're supposed to be. And church family, this is where praying for revival starts. It, it's coming to that reality where you begin to see things clearly. Isaiah is seeing things clearly here. And here's the thing that I want you to lean into and understand. Do you realize that in this room today, the church of Jesus Christ, we are a part of the new covenant. We are the covenant people of God. And the new covenant that we are a part of as the church of Jesus Christ is better than the old covenant. You see, this new covenant is not ratified by the blood of bulls or goats or any other animals. It is ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ himself who died in our place and who resurrected and we now, by faith in him, enter into this covenant community where we become the people of God who exist to represent God on planet Earth. And what gives us the distinction as the people in the new covenant is not that God's spirit dwells in the temple, but rather God's spirit makes a temple out of you and me. And the church of Jesus Christ is now walking in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the presence and the power of God is what gives us our covenant identity, our distinction as the people of God. Do you realize that we are called as the church to be God's people, filled with God's presence, representing God's power so that the lost world might know the salvation that is found in Christ and Christ alone. This is what he's redeemed us for. And the only difference, the only thing that makes this significant is, listen, is that we have the presence and the power of the living God dwelling inside of us. We are to be the, the, the light of the world, the hope of the world that ushers in Jesus, pushes back darkness so that the world might know, like, who is the creator God? I don't know, but those people do. And we see him. Their lives look radically different. They walk with a power that is not found in any other religion. There is an intimacy and a relationship with God that we can't find in any other place. There is something about their marriages when he is in the middle of it that's transformative. There's something about the way that they have values that's different than everyone else. There's something about them and that something is the presence and the power of God. That is who we are called to be as the people of God. But just think about this for a moment. When, when, when Solomon finished the temple, and they were dedicating the temple, something amazing happened. God showing them that this was the apex of the covenant. It says that as they prayed, the, 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 the presence of God fell. Fire and smoke filled the temple. And there was this display and manifestation of God's presence entering into this place, showing them that, that this is the, the presence of the living God is gonna dwell among you. Fast forward to the book of Acts. The new covenant has been finally established. Jesus has died and he has ascended. What, is he, what do we see happening? The people of God gathering together to pray and once again, what happens? Smoke and fire fall from heaven. And this time it doesn't come to fill a building, it comes to fill a people. So can I just help you listen? If we're the people of God and we're not walking in the presence and the power of God, we lose our covenant distinction on planet earth the need for the presence and the power of God is not a side thing it's the only thing it's what we need more than anything else and until we recognize that we're not living in it think about this for a second if we're not living in this that means that we're like the people who God has never ruled over 
We're like a people that's not been called by his name at all. Church buildings that are filled with people, but the presence of God is not there. It's just a gathering of people with no distinction from any other gathering. But you put a few believers in a room and Jesus show up in power. Now, all of a sudden, it's the kingdom of God on earth. And here's what you find in the scriptures and in church history. Here's what you discover, that whenever the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, amazing things happen. That evidence that he's there. Sinners are radically saved. Disciples are made. The church regularly prays together. The Sunday gathering, Sunday church, are a supernatural event that result in supernatural power. People are healed. The gospel is preached. Cultures and communities are transformed. Marriages are restored. Unity is enjoyed. Worship is authentic. Jesus is the hero. And there is an awareness of God's presence. Biblically and historically, this is what you've seen every time the church is filled with the presence of God. So listen, if that's the case, then what would you call most of our experiences in church? It's not that. Are we seeing that? Where is the presence and the power of God in our lives? Where is the presence and the power of God in our families? Where is the presence and the power of God in our churches? And here's what's happened personally. We have become a people who do not walk in supernatural power by and large. We don't walk in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. There's no evangelism for most Christians in their life for the lost. And most of us live a posture that looks just like the world around us. I mean, you look at the church today, marriages are failing, children are wandering, sin is dominating, money is controlling. Where's the power of God in our lives? Think about corporately, the church as a whole. We have become a people who sees attendance at church on Sunday is optional. So like when God set the church aside, the people of God aside, I'm gonna fill you with my presence and my power is gonna be upon you. There is a connection that we have with one another and that connection gets walked in as we gather together and worship King Jesus. Sunday is supposed to be coming together and encountering as the people of God, the presence of God together. And we we live in a culture today where church is irrelevant in most people who would call themselves Christians' lives. Some see gathering and worship as a burden and would just rather do it from the convenience of their own home in their living room and not gather with the people of God. Others will only fit it in as their recreation allows. There's a problem with that. When the people of God don't wanna gather with, with the people of God and the presence of God and experience his glory and power, listen, something is wrong. And, and I, 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 I've said I've vented the last two services and I wanna qualify that because this book has really kicked my backside, this uh, returning to holiness. And I realize sometimes what I call venting, I'm just complaining. And um, I'm not doing that, but he, he, here's this time. Um, But I'll be honest with you, I'm as a pastor, I'm so, I'm so tired of church growth experts and people who are supposed to be 
you know, the smartest church pastors in the world telling other churches how they should be operating. And here's what I'm hearing inevitably with the shift that's happened in our culture. We're being told as pastors that you have to modify your expectation. You need to change your ministry model. You need to make sure that we're in a new cultural norms, a new cultural rhythms, and, you know, and, and we're not seeing people, you know, attend church. So you need to, you know, change the expectations. And listen, I'm just telling you, that's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. For 2,000 years, the people of God, filled with the presence of God, would meet on Sunday and we would remember that there's a bloody cross and an empty tomb and that we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and we would gather together for encouragement, for accountability, to, to, to listen to the preaching of God's word, to worship together, but most importantly, to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit so we can leave the place together and go into the community and be a light in the world. For 2,000 years, this is what the church has done. And you're telling me now because COVID came along, the new cultural norms should change the expectation? That's crazy. See, the, the reason we're in this state is that rather than the church modifying culture, the church is constantly trying to modify for culture. And this is a problem. See, if, we're, if we were to get honest about where we are as the people of God, by and large, again, I know this is not a blanket on every individual in this room. But remember, you're not a Christian in isolation. You are part of a larger family. And listen, I, I don't know about you. Like if my kids get sick, I'm not gonna go, well, I'm not sick, right? You gonna do that with your kids? Well, I'm not sick. What does it bother me? No, no, no. If one person in the family's hurting, all of us are hurting. And so we talk about this as, as a whole, by and large in America, we're, we're spiritually sick. Here's, I believe, a good summary In so many churches across America, the members are present, but the Holy Spirit is absent. So many churches operate out of innovation, but have no manifestation. We are filled with programs, but we lack power. So many Christians show up to church on a Sunday morning where we're supposed to be the people of God, filled with the presence of God, to gather together and engage, like to be in the presence. You realize church is supposed to be, we come together as the people redeemed to encounter the creator of the universe. And most of us come to church on a Sunday morning and never give one thought of the reality that today I get to meet with God and his people. So, <laughs> eyes right here just for a second. I, I know this is weighty. You're like, Pastor, those sermons are hard to listen to. They're even harder to preach, I promise you that. We'll trade places if you want. But I, I was right here just for a second. Hear me say this. The point of this is not shame and guilt. Please hear me say that. The point of this is not shame and guilt. Recognition is not supposed to lead to depression, all right? Like a lot of times we just think in church culture, the pastor beats me up. That, that, that recognition of sin should lead me to depression over who I am. I'm, I'm terrible, I'm, I'm awful, I'm, I'm not a good Christian, I need to do better. That's been some of the feedback I've gotten this week and some of our other staff members have gotten from people that have taken this, this prayer journey with us. They've been reading Returning to Holiness and like the gazillion questions that every time is peeling back another layer of my heart. Anybody feel that in the room? 
And a lot of the responses have been, oh, I'm just terrible Christian and I'm a bad Christian and I need to be a better Christian. I need to work harder and man, I just stink and I'm awful. And listen to me, that's not the point. The goal isn't shame and guilt. And I'm, listen, if you're leaving confession and and leaving these sermons and you're leaving those those resources of going through and examining your life like, oh, I'm, I'm terrible and I'm sorry and I'm a horrible Christian and I need to do better. Listen, you're still focusing on the wrong thing. If you leave talking about you, then you didn't get the point. So if I I see the areas of my life and I leave going, well, I gotta do better and I gotta get this done and I'm a terrible Christian, I'm still thinking about the problem, which is me. You see, recognition of the absence of the presence and the power of God, it's not supposed to lead us to a depression, but rather a desperation for God's presence and power to return. So the point is not how bad you are, but how bad we need him. This is the heartbeat. And this is what we find with Isaiah, that his recognition of the absence of God's presence and power led to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. Listen, Isaiah doesn't evaluate the landscape and go, oh, I'm a terrible prophet. I should have preached better. Woe is me. I mean, this is just an awful place to be. And I mean, I just need to try to do better. That's not his response. Look at his response. Look at what he says in verse 12. He, he turns his attention to the Lord. He says, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now listen to this. Isaiah is, is evaluating the landscape and he sees the destruction of the sin of the people. God's presence is gone. His power is gone. The city is destroyed. Their identity as the covenant people is gone. And Isaiah then looks at this and he turns his eyes toward the heaven and says, do you see what's going on here? Are you gonna do something about it? Are you gonna leave us in this place? Isaiah is not indicting God. He, don't, don't think that. Isaiah in this moment is not indicting God. Check this out. He's inviting God. He is not shaking his finger going, how could you have caused this? No, he's looking up to the heavens and he's saying, you're our only hope unless you intervene. If you leave us here, we die. You've got to come through. You can't leave us here. Oh Lord, you're our only hope. That's the heartbeat of Isaiah. This is a man whose recognition has led him to a desperation that declared to the Lord, unless you give a visitation of your spirit, there is no transformation in our life. This is a man hungry for God to move. This is so important that we get this. God revealing our sin is not supposed to cause us to look more harshly at ourself. It's to look honestly at ourself, but it's to look more intently at him. It's to come to the end of ourselves. The problem is us. And if we keep trusting us to fix us, we're gonna still have the same problem inside of us. Now, the, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. I gotta get my eyes off of me and onto him. It's coming to a place, listen, of brokenness and emptiness where you realize that Jesus is your only hope. And by the way, isn't this what Jesus told us was the answer? Look what Jesus writes in Matthew chapter five, verse three. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is showing recognition, leads to desperation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do we get access to the kingdom of heaven? Recognition that leads to desperation. Poor in spirit doesn't mean you beat yourself up. It, it just recognizes I have nothing to bring and everything to receive. It's realizing spiritually I'm bankrupt in the presence of God. Therefore, I'm coming to him not with my solutions, but my life submitted to him. And he says the answer is this is that Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word comforted here is the idea of comfort from the presence of God. This is why Jesus and John would later on call the Holy Spirit, God's presence, as the comforter. So he's saying to us, Jesus, saying, there's comfort. How many of you want the comfort of the Holy Spirit in your life? You want the comfort of the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, listen to this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So if you want the comfort of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've got to mourn and grieve over your sin. It's coming to the recognition of where you are spiritually and turning your eyes saying, God, I need you to step in. So mourning over sin leads to comfort by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes on to say this. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth is the idea of, of having the significance and prominence as the people of God on earth. How do we get that? The meek will inherit the earth. It's those who humble themselves before God, realizing we have nothing to bring to the table. Look what he says in verse number uh, six. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So you want satisfaction of the soul, which is what Jesus is referring to? You gotta begin to be hungry and thirst for righteousness more than the things of this world. This is the point. Recognition leads to desperation. And Jesus is saying the posture of, of his people under the new covenant is that we come to him poor, Grieving over our sin, humbling ourselves before him as our only hope with an appetite of more of him in our life, knowing that he is the only one that satisfies. It's recognition that leads to desperation. And this recognition that leads to desperation will ultimately usher in a visitation. And that visitation will lead to transformation. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to look up here at the screen. And I want to go back to Isaiah chapter six and really illustrate this for you and the life of Isaiah. So up until this point, Isaiah has seen the Lord. He has seen the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and there's the glory of King Jesus there on the throne and he is experiencing it. And this is Isaiah's response. He says, woe is me for I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and don't miss this, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see what's happening here in this moment? In the presence of God, Isaiah struts into the temple that morning as if he belonged. Isaiah walks into the temple that day and all is well in the soul of Isaiah, but then something happens, Jesus shows up. The presence of God fills the temple and then all of a sudden, Isaiah begins to see something in himself he did not see before. He, he simply in the presence of God realizes the depth of his sin and he just declares, woe is me, I am ruined or I am undone. The idea is this, is that woe is me, I'm a dead man. I don't belong in the presence of the Lord. There is this recognition and, and notice what, he says next, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, here's what's happening in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah, when he gets a glimpse of God's holiness, he also gets a glimpse of his own sinfulness. 
The reason so many of us are comfortable in our sin, comfortable with sin in our life, and the reason we downplay it and we dismiss it and we excuse it and we pretend like it's not there is because what we typically do with our sin is that we justify it based on our experiences or we downplay it based upon comparison to somebody else who sins worse than we do. And so what happens is, is that our lives continue in the mire and muck of sin and we don't really get honest about the depth of what it really is. But here's what happens. When you enter into the presence of the Holy Spirit and you get a glimpse of who God is, you will see yourself for who you are not. Because in the presence of God, all my excuses are irrelevant. In the presence of God, there's only one person I can compare myself to. So it doesn't matter if I'm better than him or her or them or that person. The only thing that matters is this is who Jesus is and this is who I am. And now there is this reality of really the condition of my soul. There is a honest recognition, but it's not just internally. Notice what Isaiah also says. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, the sin of culture rises to the surface. Sin that maybe Isaiah has ignored for years. Sin that maybe Isaiah has just settled in. That's just how the world is. But when he sees the holiness of God, he sees the sinfulness of himself and he is wrecked by the sin of those around him. Believer, can I ask you a question? Why are we not more heartbroken over the sin of culture than we are? Why is it that we don't watch the news as the people of God and just weep? Why is it that we watch our friends and the social groups, people we interact with and their lives are falling apart and they're making decisions and they're just blazing a trail into darkness? and we'll gossip about it, and we'll look down upon it, but we won't weep over it. Why is it that we see the church in America in a place of decline? There are more mega churches in America than in the history of the church in America, and there were fewer converts and disciples being made than in the history of America. Why don't we weep over that? It's because what we need is a fresh encounter of the Holy Spirit that leads us to a place of recognizing the true condition of our life and the life of our world around us. Why is it that we just passively talk about sin as if Jesus didn't really die for it? Why do we not blush at the things that we welcome into our life? Why do we not feel shame over the things that Jesus took to nail to a cross? It's because we've settled in. And Isaiah, in this moment, he sees the Lord and he says he's high and lifted up. And now in the light of the glory and the holiness, Isaiah recognized the depth of his and the nation's sinfulness. And he's devastated over it. But this recognition doesn't lead Isaiah to making excuses. Or I'm, I'm just a terrible prophet. I need to get better. No, no, no. What does he do? Listen, what he says is, is simple. Like, don't miss this. I love the text. Woe is me. I'm a dead man. 
because I'm a sinful man and the world I live in is sinful. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Hard stop. No more words needed. I've said enough. This recognition led him to a desperation. I'm not in a position to bargain with God to justify my sin. No, my eyes have seen the king of glory and I'm a broken man. I recognize that there, unless there's an intervention, there is no hope for me. I'm a dead man unless he steps in. Recognition leading to desperation. And here's the beauty. Here's what happens when we get into that posture. Look what happens next in verse number six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Do you see what happens here? There is a recognition that leads to a desperation that leads to a visitation. And this is beautiful. Listen, the king of glory on his throne He hears the confession of Isaiah and he tells one of the seraphims, hey, quick, go get a coal from the altar, place of sacrifice. And I want you to take it and I want you to touch the lips of Isaiah. Why did he touch the lips of Isaiah? Because Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know what that means? That the grace of God will meet you at the point of your greatest need. And the grace and mercy of God in this moment is poured out upon Isaiah, this recognition leading to desperation. Now there is a divine visitation and grace and mercy is experienced. And I love what happens next. You see this transformation in Isaiah's life. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Do you see the transformation here? Isaiah, just in a couple of verses goes, woe is me, I don't belong here, I'm a dead man, to yes, I'll go wherever you send me, I'm yours. He went from I don't belong in your presence to I'm gonna live on your mission. What's the difference between what he declares in verse five and what he declares in verse eight? And it's the visitation of God where God displays his grace and mercy on the life of Isaiah and Isaiah is never the same again this is why years later walking on the streets seeing the destruction knowing the grace and mercy that he had been displayed he begins to cry out oh that you would rend the heavens and come down God I know I've experienced your grace I've seen your glory and power I've recognized what happens when we get desperate for you that you show up and God I'm asking you to do it for your people You know the glory of this? This is what blows me away. And I don't want to keep beating this thing, but don't miss this. Isaiah is seeing Jesus on the throne on the front end of the cross. And the the Jesus on the throne on the front end of the cross offers grace and mercy from the place of sacrifice. You know what we get? We get the Jesus on the backside of the cross. 
just a few hundred years after this experience of Isaiah seeing King Jesus seated on the throne and the train of his robe filling, filling the temple and the presence of God there and the glory of God there, King Jesus stood up from his throne and he took off the robe of glory and he put on the robe of flesh and he stepped down and he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died and he resurrected again. And he is now exalted to the right hand of the Father, back into that place on his throne once again. And now he is ever interceding for us, not with coals from the altar, but by the blood that he shed for us. You see, with that vantage point, we should come to that place of saying, God, we, in light of your grace, we we want to see your power and presence. If this is what you have done for us, we want to be your people. We want to experience your presence and your power in our life. And here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to ask you to just stand to your feet. And I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Very simple invitation this morning. We're going to take a couple of minutes and sing. And I'm going to ask you just to, I don't want a lot of movement in the room. Just stand in reverence and bow your head. And I'm gonna ask that our decision encouragers go ahead right now and get in position. And I wanna say there are some of you in this room with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, there are some of you in this room and what you need is a relationship with Jesus. You are lost. You don't know where you're gonna spend eternity. For many of you, you've heard the gospel, but you've never been transformed and born again by it. And you're living with fear fear of whether or not you have a relationship with God. I want you to know that you can get that settled today, right here, right now. King Jesus that Isaiah witnessed in Isaiah 6 is the same king that wants to meet you today. And with no one looking around, I would just say to you, if you are in this place and you are uncertain of your relationship, in a moment when we start singing, I'm gonna encourage you right now Nothing else matters in life than you getting your relationship with Jesus settled. And so when we begin to sing, I'm challenging you to leave your seat, come to one of these men and women in the aisles in front of you and look at them and say, I am uncertain of my relationship with Jesus, but I want to make certain today. I wanna know him. And if that's you, I'm gonna encourage you, don't let another moment go by. You need a relationship. God loves you, Jesus proves it. And you've got to submit to him. And today is a day of salvation for you. And some of you are fearful right now because you're like, I know I need to. I don't think I have the courage. Listen to me. You take that step of faith and God will do the rest. Let his spirit prompt you. And I promise you, it'll be the best decision you ever make in your life. Others of you in this room, I want you to really ask yourself the question, are you living with a recognition of where we are as the people of God? And has that recognition moved you to a place of desperation? I want you to really examine. And if the answer is yes, then begin to pray for revival. If the answer is no, ask God to give you eyes to see. This altar is going to be open. You can kneel in the aisles. You can come up front, talk to one of our encouragers. But let's, as a people of God, let's ask him, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, show us where we are and, and give us a desperation for more of you. Father, I love you. I ask that you'll take this time right now. Use it for your glory to advance your purposes in our church. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.